0: verses 11 and 12, and then we will pray. And ask God's blessing on our study. 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which You were called and about which You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Father, we do ask You this morning as we come to Your inspired, authoritative, inerrant Word that You would teach us and let us see how far, we, how far short we fall of Your glory. And yet, let us look to Christ and find our strength in Him, our salvation, our righteousness. Um, give us great ability through the Spirit of God to desire and to do the things that you have called us to do, even in this text. And may you be glorified in it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, happy Father's Day, brothers. Today is Father's Day. And I honestly can't think of a more fitting text for Father's Day. Fathers are called by God to be men of God. And uh, I think that it is true to say that there is no greater gift that a father can give to his children than to be a man of God by the grace of God. So I hope that uh, your hearts, men, will be drawn to this text and You will seek after these things with your whole heart. We will do this together and spur one another on to these things and trust in the work of the indwelling Spirit to bring them about in our lives. Let me review with you a little bit this morning what we talked about last week, and then we'll pick up with verse 12 on the new material that we have to look at this morning. David I mean, uh, Paul calls Timothy a man of God in this text. You can see it very clearly there in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God. And we noted last week, that that's a very interesting title because it only appears twice in the entire New Testament, and both of them are in the letters of Timothy. And Timothy is the only one who's directly called the man, a man of God. And what Paul is doing is he is associating Timothy with men of the Old Testament who were often called that, men like Moses and Samuel and David and Elijah and Elisha. And the reason why Paul calls Timothy a man of God is because like those men of the Old Testament, he's been chosen by God, he is belonging to God, he's filled with God's Word and he's been appointed to a specific assignment at a specific time to a specific group of people. Paul knows that the task that he has entrusted to him is a difficult task. He knows that Timothy struggles with timidity and fear and discouragement. And so Paul encourages Timothy and spurs him on by giving him this title that would, would have immediately been associated in Timothy's mind with these men of the Old Testament Timothy, you're a man of God too. In spite of Timothy's weaknesses. Remember, all through redemptive history, it's not the strength of the man that makes him a man of God. Right? That that is an important theme that we're going to look at at the end of this this text. It's not the man who makes himself a man of God. Right? We talk about people and we we call them sometimes, well, he's a self-made man. And by that, we mean that, you know, he came up from a very low state, as we think of uh, life in this world, and he educated himself, and he made himself wealthy, and he made himself successful. And really, we have to understand that what do we have that we haven't received from God, and even more so in things of heaven, to be a a man of God in the church of Christ, no one makes themselves a man of God. That's is by the work of God alone. And so Paul is reminding Timothy in spite of his weaknesses, in spite of his youth, right? Remember that text in 1 Timothy 4? In spite of his fear, in spite of his discouragement, he's a man of God because God has chosen him. He belongs to God. He's been equipped by the Scriptures. He's been commissioned by the authority of God and and the Lord Jesus Christ to speak the Word of God to the people of God. And so for that reason, Timothy was a chosen man of God. That's what Paul is reminding Timothy of. 1 Timothy 4, 11-14 talks about that. He's been saved. He's been called into ministry. He's been gifted by the Spirit. He's been equipped with the Word. Timothy is a man of God by God's grace. And so Paul gives a powerful word of genuine encouragement by calling Timothy a man of God. It's not pretentious because he sees what God is doing in Timothy's life. But it's also a title that spurs Timothy on personally to pursue what he must pursue as a chosen man of God. He needs to pursue the virtues to which God has called him. He needs to run from the dangers that would wage war against his soul in the terminology of Peter. And so Timothy, by God's grace, as he pursues God's glory, both through pure doctrine and godly living, God will use him then to bring others to salvation. And I love that couplet that Paul puts before Timothy often, that couplet that says in, for example, 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to your life and your doctrine. Do we grasp the importance of that? It's not just doctrine that's important, that is important, but it's life, the life to to be holy as God is holy. Again, that's not something we achieve for ourselves, but something we must pursue in the life of the Spirit in union with Christ and in fellowship with other believers. And so while this text was written to Timothy, this text is also written for every member of the church of Christ, some by direct application, others by implication. And this text, yes, like other texts in 1 Timothy, is most directly applicable to elders and deacons and specifically to elders. But every member of the church of Jesus Christ is called to follow the example of their godly leaders just as the members of the church of Ephesus were to follow the example of Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.12. We see that Timothy is to provide that example. And so, as you look through the words of this text, there's really... Very little, if anything, that cannot be imp- applied in some way to every member of the body of Christ. And so the main idea that we have focused on from this text is, by the saving power of God, pursue the marks of the man of God. That's, that's what it means to be who God has called us to be. How do we do that? What are the marks of a man of God? Number one, we looked last week, he flees, right? He He flees. You see this first off. The first command. Flee these things. Run as if running from danger. These things refers to the the greedy, selfish, money-loving life of the false teacher. That's the most immediate referent to these things that we see in verse 11. We've looked at those things all through the last several weeks. You can read them in verses 3-10. through 10. Paul calls Timothy to flee from what comes of the life of loving money. Temptation. Senseless, harmful desires, verse 9. Ruin, destruction. All kinds of evil. Wandering away from the faith. Being pierced with many pangs. Denying the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, and so on. Flee these things. Paul doesn't give Timothy options here. He is exhorted to flee these things continually with every spirit impulse within him. And you and I must flee these things too. Right? These are commands that we're, we're given here. These are imperatives in this text. We have no option. We must not stay around or look longingly at those things which we are commanded to flee in Scripture. We're not to follow the example of Lot and his wife. We're always moved at that story where the, apostles, or, uh, the the messengers of God come to Lot and his family and they say, leave Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you remember the kind of almost the argument that goes on between them? Well, can we live as close as we can, right, to Sodom and Gomorrah? And even as they're leaving, Lot's wife turns and longs for what she's leaving, and it's turned into a pillar of salt. I think we're called more so here to follow the example of Joseph, whose garments were grasped by Potiphar's wife, and he was so intent on fleeing that he left his garment in her hands. Right? That's the idea here. Secondly, by the saving power of God as we pursue the marks of, of the man of God, we're called to pursue things. Pursue. Verse, verse 11, the second part of that. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. To run swiftly in order to reach a goal or to acquire something, to seek after something earnestly and Intensely righteousness is the first thing practical righteousness which begins at justification is completed with our glorification it's accomplished by the command of christ to the power of the indwelling spirit and the word of god this righteousness is that our thoughts and words and actions and attitudes would be conformed to the revealed will of the father and bring pleasure to him through christ This is daily submission and obedience to the Word of God. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek first to be ruled by God, to be ruled by His will, His Word, and every aspect of life. His righteousness. Then Paul talks about godliness. Pursue godliness, Timothy. Reverence, piety toward God. If righteousness emphasizes the outer life of obedience to the Word of God, the actions then godliness emphasizes the motives, the inner life of worship toward God in all things. Godliness describes the man who is mindful of God's presence, pursues the knowledge of God with his whole heart, lives in awe of God's greatness and glory, is humbled by that before God, Desires to love God and bring glory to God in every thought and word and action and attitude. Not that he accomplishes those things in this life, but that is his pursuit. That is his desire. He's constantly plagued by how short he falls for those desires to be godly in his heart. And yet it's his desire. It's his pursuit in the Spirit, in union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's Godliness faith. We looked at this last week as well. Faith. And remember, the word faith can really have three uh, definitions to it. It can mean the truth, right? The substance of what our faith rests upon. That, that's called the faith. Or faithfulness, being having integrity and being trustworthy by the grace of God. Or simply trust. So faith can mean It can refer to what is true, it can refer to trust, and it can refer to being trustworthy. And so the man of God really pursues all those things. The man of God who is pursuing faith is pursuing what is true. His life, one of the greatest ambitions of his life is to discover truth about everything that God would bring to him. The man of God is pursuing faith, is pursuing, he's he's concerned about God's perfections. Who is God? God's promises. What has God said and and made sure? God's power. God's plans for the ages. God's purposes for His life and the lives of others in the body of Christ. A man of God pursues those things. He pursues truth. But he also, in light of that truth, pursues a growing exercise of trust in God. As a Christian, each phase of life as God grows you up, brings you new opportunities to learn to trust God. Can you relate with that? You know, you, you were a young Christian and you grew up in your 20s and you, you learned to live life on your own and there were reasons to trust God that you'd never been confronted with before. And you move all through life and then you reach your 70s and there are new reason, reasons to trust God that you've never experienced before. Right? All through life, that's the way it is. All through life, that's the way it is. New reasons to trust God, new experiences in which to find God to be absolutely faithful. And so that's what the, the man of God desires, a growing experience of trust in God, no matter what God sovereignly appoints for his earthly life. Sometimes it, well, maybe always, when you are confronted with a new opportunity to trust God, It's difficult. And it requires the the work of the Spirit within to believe God's promises in a fresh way. Faithfulness, right, to God and His people, no no matter the pressure, no matter the personal cost, to be reliable, trustworthy, integral for God's glory. See, faith is not a static aspect of our spiritual lives, it grows, it must grow and increase. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. See, that, that's the heart of the child of God, the man of God is that faith would continue to grow and love with that. And that's the next virtue that Paul puts before Timothy as a man of God. Love, the highest affection and commitment to God and others. The affection which serves in sacrifices for the good of others and the glory of God. A willingness and a loyalty to deny self for the edification of others and the exaltation of Christ. 1 Corinthians 14.1 Paul says, pursue love. 1 Corinthians sixteen fourteen. let all that you do be done in love. That's the amazing thing about love. There is not one righteous action that God would call us to on this earth that cannot be motivated by love. And that's part of the, the, the experience of, of sanctification is learning to motivate everything that we do with, with Christ-like love. And when you think about that, you think, well, how short do I fall? And may the Lord enable us more and more to be motivated by true divine love. Steadfastness, patience, endurance, fortitude. Perseverance, particularly under the weight, uh, the pressure, the stress of difficult situations r- like wrongs done to you, uh, extreme sorrow, pain, and suffering, great loss. Steadfastness, the believer is called to. A perseverance in all of the virtues under the pressure of difficult times. It's difficult under the pressure of trials and testing to remain righteous and to continue to pursue godliness and to express faith and love and gentleness but that's what the man of god is called to to be steadfast no matter how intense the pressure is that's james 1:12, right blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which god as promised to those who love Him. And the last virtue that Paul talks about here in verse 11, gentleness, meekness, in other words, or kind, the kindness of patience, a, a mildness that bears graciously with people and ministers and teaches and serves others, even when those people are very difficult to be with. Even when the man of God is under great pressure from various difficult circumstances. 2 Timothy 2 24 through 26, the servant of the Lord must not fight or strive or quarrel, but be patient with all, gentle, enduring hostility, so that by God's grace, He grants repentance. These virtues are the lifelong pursuit of the man of God. If I were to ask you the question, what is a man of God to you? What qualities would you list? This is what the Apostle Paul lists. This is a man of God. And so, now that we know that, Paul commands Timothy to make these his ongoing pursuit. And you and I are commanded then as well by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to pursue these virtues as well. Again, remember, these are commands to us. Pursue this. Christ will be our shepherd. And He will supply to us all that we need to pursue these things. Remember, Psalm 23, what does it say about the Good Shepherd? He leads us in what? Paths of righteousness. While you pursue these things by the great work of the Spirit within you, your shepherd's going to lead you right into it. And you see this as well, the shepherding heart of God in Hebrews 13, And 21, that He will provide everything that you need to do His will, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight for His glory. But we must pursue continually, relentlessly, until we see Him face to face and are like Him. And The Apostle John speaks of that pursuit as the quality of children of God. 1 John 2.29 says, Those who are pursuing righteousness do so because He is righteous. And we're called children of God. And we wait for his return. And when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has that hope in him purifies himself, even as Christ is pure. That's our pursuit. By the saving power of God, let us pursue the marks of a man of God. Brothers and sisters, take this to heart. Who do you want to become? If you're a believer, none of us as believers are satisfied with who we are. Right? We're always desiring to be like our Savior. And here is a practical expression of that. Number three this morning and our new material begins here. The man of God is a warrior. He fights. Take this to heart too. Fight. The good fight of the faith. What a statement, huh? Fight the good fight of the faith. That's interesting because most of the time we think we're called to peace, right? And here's a verse that says, you are called to fight. You're to be a warrior. This word refers to the arena of a conflict or a contest. And that would be very picturesque for the, the one sitting in Ephesus, understanding that the Olympic arena was probably not far away, and the Olympic Games were something that they lived for. And so that's what this word indicates, fight. And it not only refers to the arena or the place of conquest or contest, but it but it also refers to the very struggle that happens in that arena the agony of conflict and that's where we get our word agony is from this word fight we must understand clearly that the man of god is in an actual conflict he is not sitting on the sidelines watching He is in a conflict and he is fighting. Now, when you hear me say that, right? the man of God is in a conflict. He's not sitting on the sidelines. He's daily in a conflict, a real conflict, fighting. Does that ring true with your experience? What is this fight that the man of God must be engaged in? Well, the Apostle Paul calls it here, The good fight. He says it's a good fight. And I think there's some some things important that we need to notice about that. The the man of God is not engaging himself in useless fights. Lots of people do that. But rather the good fight, the excellent, noble, honorable fight, not a worthless or even counterproductive fight, or, or spiritually speaking. Well, what fights are which are which, which are good, which are not? Well, I'm going to show you some texts where the Apostle Paul teaches Timothy what not to fight about. Look at Romans chapter 14. And I haven't, I haven't pressed this out to the very detail of so many applications, but I'll let you do that in the, in the, as the Spirit of God ministers to you. But let me just show you the texts where Paul says, let this quarrel go. Romans 14.1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over what? Opinions. So there is a really helpful piece of Scripture. When the man of God is considering engaging in a conflict with other people, or the thoughts of other people, one of the things he's unwilling to absorb himself in is a conflict over opinions. So ask the Lord to give you discernment. Is this an opinion thing? Or is this a matter of truth and lie, sin and righteousness? Okay, let's look at another text. First Timothy. And, and we're going in in just in order of the New Testament here, so we're going moving over to the right. First uh, Timothy three. Talks about the quality of of an elder. 1 Timothy 3.3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So in the context there, it seems that this kind of quarrelsomeness comes from a a, a personality or a demeanor that, that tends toward violence and not gentleness. And maybe, on the other side of that, not a lover of money, maybe part of that is some motive of greed. So not to be quarrelsome. First Timothy 6 and verse 4. Remember this text. This is, the, this is the behavior of the false teacher. It says, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an healthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension slander evil suspicion again the man of god is called away from quarrels about words that are empty and useless producing envy dissension slander and so on he loves he loves the controversy he loves to take random words maybe even in the scriptures and turn their meaning and, and argue and quarrel with others about things that do not affect the meaning, the gospel meaning and application of a text. You find this sort of thing very often in higher criticism, for example. Look at Second Timothy 2 and verse 14. Remind them of these things. And charge them before God, not to quarrel about words. There, that's what Paul says again. Which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Quarreling about words. Titus 1.7 refers to something very similar to 1 Timothy 3. Referring to the qualifications of an elder, Titus 1.7, an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. There again you see those attributes put together. Titus 3 and verse 9, here's our last text that Paul refers to quarreling. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So I think that's... That's more, there's more content there than what we have time to get into this morning. But something for us to think about when we are engaging in a conflict over something with another brother or sister in Christ or even an unbeliever, we have to ask ourselves, is this an opinion? Is this a controversy that has no bearing on the truth? Is this a twisting of words that that is a misleading and kind of a never-ending pursuit of questions? Stay away from it. So then what is the good fight? What is the noble fight? What is the honorable fight? And the Apostle Paul tells us here, what is it? It's the fight of the faith. Now there, there's something to, to conflict, to, to have conflict about as necessary. It's con- what does that mean? Contend or... or um, the fight of the faith. Well, contending for the true gospel. That's something to be at conflict about. Again, we don't have to do that necessarily with an arrogant, belligerent attitude. No, you can, you can speak truth and remain steadfast in a conflict and remain under the control of the Spirit. Right? Contend for the true gospel, for pure Biblical doctrine without error. That is such an important thing. Men, listen. All of you. Do you consider that your battle? To maintain the purity of the Gospel. If no larger arena than in your home. You see? That's what you're called to. Ladies, you're called to this as well. Maintain the purity of the Gospel. But also then to keep trusting in the the true gospel, and not to wander from the hope of the gospel. You see, you you might have a fight about the meaning of the gospel, and that's sort of an external thing, but also the war doesn't stop with external things, does it? The war is within us as well. It is a fight against the evil one, against our own flesh, our own worldly desires to continue, continue to trust in the true gospel and not wander from the hope of the gospel, and to influence others to faith in the true gospel as well and remain steadfast in their faith. That's a fight against the world system, against the evil one. This is our fight. It's a fight against the world system. What is that, the world system? The the order that is unified by selfish, idolatrous impulses that rebel against God. That's what the world is. That's how the apostle John defines the world for example. Against God against his king, right? Psalm 2, the nations rage against Christ, against the truth. This is a fight also as I said against our own flesh, against the evil one, against temptations to sin, our own propensities to sin. This is a fight against the sins of others or to labor to see others come out of the entanglements of sin. Galatians 6, 1, for example, and following. It's against errors and perversions of the truth, the deception, the deceptive arguments that lead men into lies. Any and all of the works of the darkness, that, that's, that's our fight. Is that your fight? People fight about a lot of things, right? And Paul is saying, let go of the empty, useless fights and engage in these These are the the battles that matter for eternity. We fight against the spirit of Antichrist. We fight against the, the desires of the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. These are the things we wage against. We fight against our own tendencies to become discouraged and to return to worldly faithless life, a life of pleasure when the pressures of the trials become so great. The conflict that we're called to engage in is vast and constant. It's relentless. And our struggle is not a physical war against other human beings. Our struggle is a spiritual war against the mindset of those human beings. The very people whose mindset we war against are the same people that we're seeking to rescue in the war by the truth and we're at war with our own sinful desires and the strong impulses of our deceitful hearts to follow the impulses of our yet unredeemed bodies. Let me show you some texts of this. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16? This is the fight of the faith. I guess you could ask yourself that question. Is my fight a fight related to the faith? 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. But I say, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effectual work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. There's a fight of the faith, right? What was Paul after? He had a door for witness. And as you are seeking to give the truth into the minds of unbelievers by the Spirit of God. Do you think there's going to be a fight in that? There absolutely will be. That's the kind of fight that you're to fight, to give people the truth. Or 1 Corinthians 9. Look back at 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 24. Do you not know that In a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. What's the fight that Paul is talking about there? He disciplines his body. He's he's talking about fighting against their own fleshly tendencies to sin and self-gratification. He preaches the gospel to others, but he wants to be sure by the grace of God that he will not prove himself to be disqualified by following his own sinful fleshly impulses. That's a fight. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 For the, we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every obedience when your obedience is complete. What's the fight there? To destroy arguments that contradict the true knowledge of Christ and the gospel. That's a fight. Every thought must be captive to obedience to Christ. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, right? There's the armor of God. Do you realize I was reading, how many of you have read or have enjoyed over the years the Gospel Primer? That's a wonderful book to help remind you of the gospel. Well, his section in there I found very intriguing about the the armor of God. And he went through all six pieces of armor and showed how all six pieces of armor are really another expression of the gospel. What is the word of God but the good news of salvation? What is righteousness but the righteousness of Christ? What is the truth other than the truth of the gospel? What is the helmet of salvation other than the work of the gospel? I mean, he just showed one piece after another. And so really, as we put on the armor of God daily to proclaim the truth to others, and to fight against sin and selfishness in our own lives, what are we doing but putting on the gospel? That's our fight. Philippians, look at Philippians chapter 1. Verses 29 and 30. Philippians 1, 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul writes to his beloved Philippian church and he says, for it has been granted to you, it's been a gift that God has given to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Just like James, the Apostle Paul there describes suffering for Christ and the pressure of affliction as a gift from God. And look what he says, while doing that, they are engaged, verse 30, in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What conflict was that? Look back at Philippians 1 and verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel." That's the conflict of the believer. That's what Philippe, the, the, the people of Philippi fellowshipped with Paul in, was the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Not some random opinions, not some foolishness, but the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's. That's the conflict that brought Paul to prison, or to house arrest in this case, and what brought suffering upon the Philippians. That's the conflict we are to engage in. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim. Here's here's Paul's conflict again. Him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone. Warning everyone about the, the impending wrath of God and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know, chapter 2, how great a struggle. That's the same word. That's the same word here that you see in, as fight. It's translated struggle there, it's an agony. It's being in the arena. It's staying in the arena. It's fighting the good fight of the faith. That's what we're called to in prayer and in teaching. And it really is, isn't it? Mom's dad's at home, isn't it? You're fighting for the faith of your children in prayer. And as you teach them the gospel, It's a fight. That's the fight we engage in. Colossians 4.12 Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus greets you always, what? Struggling, that's the same word, on your behalf, in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You war no more effectively than when you war in prayer. That's where you do your fighting, most of it, much of it in prayer Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 Paul's analogies are so fitting here First 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 You then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also Sharing in suffering as a what? A good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in the civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David has preached... In my gospel for which I am suffering. Bound with chains is a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have denied him, we will also or if we have died with him, I'm sorry, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That's the fight. It's a fight to not deny Christ. It's a fight to endure. It's a fight to remain faithful by the grace of God and to bring others into faith of the gospel as well. Second Timothy 4.7, right? Paul's some of his final words. What did he say? I have what? I have fought the good fight. Paul said he that. I have finished, let's see, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May the Lord enable us to be able to say that on our deathbed or for Paul's situation. He saw martyrdom coming. He knew it was in the next, whatever. Days, weeks. And I have fought a good fight. I have fought the good fight. That's this fight we're talking about. And one more text. Look over to Jude. This, this is what we're to fight for. This is the real fight that God calls every every child of his to. Verse 3, Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to to write appealing to you to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And what does that contending for the faith include? Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and lead, that leads to eternal life. Part of the fight is that very thing. It's internal. It's a fight to keep your mind and heart in the love of God and to keep looking to the return of Christ, to be praying in the Holy Spirit, to build up yourself in the faith. That's the fight. But then also, the fight continues with other people. Verse 22, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. You fight for others too. To believe the truth and to, and to turn from sin. That's a fight. The fight of the faith. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to preserve you or to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever, amen. That is our hope, that's our victory right there, right? The work of Christ to keep us and to present us before the glory of God with joy. So dear ones, Timothy was drafted into this fight and you are too as a child of God. You have been drafted into this fight. Are you a draft dodger? Or are you in this fight that God calls you to? Are you engaged, mindfully, intentionally engaged in this fight? Are you laboring to equip yourself with the weapons of divine power so that you may stand strong in the victory that Christ has granted to you and rescue others by the word of truth? If you're a child of the king, you are also a soldier of the cross. And you must fight the good fight of the faith. That's what God calls us to. By the saving power of God, let's pursue the marks of a man of God. Now finally this morning, the last exhortation that Paul gives to Timothy, take hold of the eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life. To to seize... Upon, to take possession of, to grasp with the hands. What does Paul say Timothy must grasp here? Eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, Jesus said in John 17, 3, that eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ, right? To know them. Verse John 1, 1 through 4, explains that Christ himself is eternal life. And that eternal life is experienced by enjoying true fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So, eternal life is the life that is lived in fellowship with God. It is life that doesn't end, yes but it is also life of the highest quality. It's life with God. Eternal life is being alive to and enjoying the realities that are above, like Colossians 3, 1-4 talks about. Seeking those things that are above where Christ is seated. Eternal life is seeking the realities that are unseen. Eternal life is the realities that are unseen, 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, looking to what is unseen. Eternal life is the order of the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. Eternal life is the realities of the age to come, Luke 18, 30. It's the abundant life lived under the care of the shepherd, John 10, 10. And when is this eternal life experienced? Well, it's experienced both now, on earth, and in heaven. Who is it experienced by? Those who are in Christ. right? Those who have been resurrected spiritually so that they can have fellowship with God, that they can enjoy life with God. And so in this verse, we read Paul exhorting Timothy to take hold of eternal life. But what does Paul mean by that exhortation then? I thought Timothy was already a Christian. Well, he is certainly not exhorting Timothy as an unbeliever and telling him that he needs to receive eternal life by faith from God through through Jesus Christ. That's not it, right? Paul wouldn't have appointed him as a as the overseer there in Ephesus if he were not yet a believer. So it must mean something else. Timothy is already a child of God. That's clear. Paul is speaking to Timothy as one who already possesses eternal life, but he is now exhorting him to let go of temporal worldly desires and take hold of eternal heavenly desires as he lives his life and does the work of ministry. And the reason why I think that is because of what he's Paul's already been talking about in the context This godliness with contentment versus this earthly covetous greed. And so Paul is urging Timothy, Timothy, take hold of eternal life by setting your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. By storing up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. Live for godliness with contentment, not greed with consumerism. Timothy, set your gaze on unseen things, not what you can see with your eyes. And let those unseen glories rule your affections and your decisions from day to day. Seek first and foremost the advancement of God's kingdom and the pursuit of His righteousness with your whole heart, Timothy. Seek it in the lives of those whom God has appointed you to minister to. Be willing to let go of the things of this life if need be in order to gain the glories of the age to come. See, Paul is not exhorting Timothy to take hold of something physically with his hands here, but take hold of something spiritually with his heart. But this taking hold is no less real. In fact, it is, in a sense, more real because it's lasting, it's eternal. Take hold of this eternal life, the things of eternal life. Paul is exhorting Timothy to set his sights on eternal things and never lose that focus in everything that he does, but hold it fast. In fact, there's another text here in the same chapter. Notice 1 Timothy 6, verses 18 and 19. The Apostle Paul is exhorting Timothy to exhort those who are rich with earthly goods. And he tells them, verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Look at verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may what? take hold of that which is truly life. See, if we live grasping with with our energy and our motive and our desire, if, if if the priority of our lives are to take hold of those things which we will lose at death, the ambitions of our life will be wasted. But if we live to hold on to those things which we can never lose, then that, that's to take hold of eternal life. Take hold of that which is truly life. That's the same exhortation here. But how is Timothy to live that way? How can we truly live that way? Well, there's a couple of things that Paul brings to Timothy's mind first, and I'm going to do these kind of in a reverse order. Paul reminds Timothy that he already had publicly committed himself for the things of eternal life when he was baptized and ordained. Notice what Paul says here. Take hold of the eternal life about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The good confession." Right? The good confession refers to the confession of the truth of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. That which Timothy would have done at his baptism, right? That which Timothy would have done at his ordination in the presence of many witnesses certainly points to a public event. So it's one or the other or both. When you were baptized. That was not the public statement of Christ's commitment to make your earthly existence pleasant by your earthly standards, but rather that was your public commitment to follow Christ and to live for the things of eternity no matter what the cost, right? That's what this is. But Christ did not leave Timothy to his own abilities either, nor nor will he leave us to our own abilities to carry out this commitment. Paul also reminds Timothy, notice this, that he was summoned by God to live for the things of eternal life. And the moment he was effectually called by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Notice this. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Don't rush over that phrase, dear ones. This, This is the gospel right here for this text. All that Paul calls Timothy to, flee these things, pursue these things, fight the good fight of the faith, it comes to the heart of it when you see Paul say here, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. That word called is the classic New Testament word that points to the effectual call of God, upon on a sinner. When God brought Timothy to life spiritually, He, he filled him with the Spirit. He, he called him out of darkness into the light. He took him out of the kingdom of, of, of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ. And that is the beginning for Timothy of the infinite source of divine power flowing into Timothy's life so that he would be able to live for eternal life and become the man of God that Paul is exhorting him to become. You were called to this. And it's the power of God's effectual call upon our lives that enables us to live for eternal things and pursue the marks of the man of God. Let me show you. Romans 8. Look at this call and the power and the certainty that comes with it. Romans 8, verse thirty. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Where does the fleeing and the pursuing and the taking hold and the fighting come into play in this text? Romans 8.30, where does it fit in? Isn't it between the justified and the glorified? This is the process of sanctification. And so you're, as a child of God, you're pursuing these things is enabled by the saving power of God, and that power began the moment He called you, because everyone He calls, He justifies, and everyone He justifies, He glorifies, and this is in between. And notice, again, I'm reminding you of things that I've, we've talked about before extensively. What tense are those verbs in? They're past tense. Why? Because from God's eternal perspective, each one of the steps of your progress in Christ is done. God can say that because He does not exist from one moment of time to the next. The future is not uncertain for Him or unknown. He's already present there. And so this eternal God who brings all things to be, including the salvation of each one of His children, has also decreed that your progress in sanctification and your ultimate glorification is certain. Think on that. Look to the calling of God and then see this text in that light and say, I I am going to flee. I am going to pursue. I am going to fight. I'm going to take hold because I've been called by God and He will enable me. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to be sanctified completely? Do you want the holy work of this text to be produced in your life? Do you want to be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Look at verse 24. He who what? He who calls you is faithful. He will what? He'll surely do it. He'll do it. He will do it in you, and you'll want it, and you will have the power to pursue it. Look at Second Timothy, or second Thessalonians two, just a few pages over. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 14. "To this he called you. To this he called you to what? Verse thirteen. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain what the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you were, we were all sinners who fell, fall short of the glory of God. Right. That was the beginning of what we believed in the truth when we were embracing the gospel. I'm a sinner who falls short, but because of the effectual call of God upon your life, you will one day obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will reflect His likeness. So then, brothers, stand firm. All right, that that, that sounds—that's them's fighting words, right? Stand firm and hold the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Look at 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Isn't that great? You can share in suffering as a good soldier. You can pursue these things in the fight of the faith, not because of your own works, not because of your own ability. But because of his purpose, his eternal purpose and grace, which he gave you in Christ when? Again, it's an eternal reality before the ages began. I hope this encourages you to keep fighting, the good fight of the faith. One last section. Actually two. First Peter chapter one. I'm sorry, first Peter two. I alluded to this verse earlier. Not sure which verse this was I had written down here. But 1 Peter 2, verse 10, there's something here that's very helpful. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of your flesh which weighed war against your soul. What am I missing here? Maybe not. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, good, thank you. But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, there it is, out of darkness into his marvelous light. One last text, 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who, what? Called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Dear ones, the calling of God is upon your life if you are a child of God. And you will pursue these things by His grace and see them develop in your life. That's our hope. That's Timothy's hope, and that's our hope. Flee from that which wages war against your soul. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life. When we see these things, the first thing that we do in response to this text is to confess, right? God, I have fallen short of this. I have been in many situations, God, when I should be fleeing from something and I don't. I grasp it instead. Forgive me. Pursue. I'm pursuing the wrong things. I'm fighting the wrong fights. I grab hold of the things of earth when I need to be taking hold of the things of heaven. You know, you can take all of that shortfall, all of those sins, all of those, those struggles and bring them before the throne of grace and know that you have forgiveness because you have a righteous advocate and a propitiator who has absorbed all of the wrath for you. Right? And I want you to think about that for a moment. You, you're not falling in and out of God's forgiveness. Do you realize that? You have it. You stand in it. Our confession of sin to our Father is not regaining a forgiveness that we've lost. It's fellowship with Him. It's it's agreeing with Him that we are what He says we are. It's walking in the light. It's realizing our own sinfulness and trusting His promise of forgiveness that He will be faithful and just to forgive as He cleanses us. Confession of sin to the Lord is part of the cleansing process, meaning the practical cleansing, that that these sins would be eliminated from our lives and we would grow to walk as He Himself walked. And we turn to Christ and we have confidence in the work of God. And so may the Lord enable you to work out these things as He works in you. And before I pray, let me talk with you for a moment if you have not yet experienced the saving power of God. Are you a child of God? Do you know that God has forgiven every sin of yours, past, present, future? Do you know that you are a child of God and one with Christ? You know, if you you know and understand what the Bible says about your sinful state, And your state as a sinner under the judgment of God. And you know that the wrath of God is abiding on you. That's what John 3 tells us. And you know that God's wrath is moving toward you in the day of your death. If you know that, and if you know and understand the gospel, if you know what the Bible says about the mercy and the love of God for sinners and how He sent His Son into the world to save sinners by His life and His death and His burial and resurrection. If you know that and you still refuse to come to Christ or are neglecting to come to Christ for salvation, then then one of two things must be true of you. One, you're either not believing the Bible You just simply don't believe that it's true. Or you're just holding on to the things of this life. You love your sin and you love the things of this life more than the things of heaven and Christ Himself. So which one is it? And I want to say to you this morning, if that's your state, I want to say to you the words of Christ. From Mark 8, he said, he calls the crowd to him with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen to this verse in particular. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. What does that mean? Doesn't that mean that if I hold on to my sin and all the things of this life, that I'm going to lose them anyway? That's exactly what it means. Do you believe Jesus when he says that to you? But he tells you if you let go of those things, if you let go of your sin and the things of this life that that captivate your heart and you embrace Christ and eternal life, you won't lose it you understand the gospel, if you embrace the gospel, you'll never lose it. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? I mean, really, if somebody said, you may have the whole world, would you take it over eternal life with Christ? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever has ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with his holy angels. To turn, to turn away Christ and eternal state with Christ for the whole world is to, is to demote Christ is to be ashamed of Him, is to diminish Him. You need to see that to have Christ and to exist with God in the eternal state is infinitely better than even having the whole world. I hope God will convict your heart and convince you of that today. I urge you to be willing to let go of what you surely will lose so that you can gain what you will never have to let go of. See the infinite value of eternity with Christ over a short time, much more than a short time with earthly pleasure and come to Christ for eternal life. Would you stand with me? Let's pray this morning and ask God to do this work in our hearts. Father, in our country today, we celebrate Father's Day and you you know that. We are so far short of the fathers that you have called us to be, but in Christ we're growing. And we want to be an example to those around us, our wives, our children. We long for all of us to pursue the virtues of the man of God. Thank you for calling us, summoning us, drawing us, empowering us spiritually to let go of the things of this life that we're going to lose and to embrace Christ and the things of heaven and eternity. Help us to be able to see what is unseen and to have the faith that values Christ overall so that we flee from those things that will destroy us. And run to the things that bring you glory. To fight the right fights. And to take hold of what is truly life. Implant all of these attributes, these virtues into us as your church. So that we can, we can live like your household. So that we can look like God lives in us. Save, Father, save. Save those who are not yet saved in our assembly. And we ask this for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus, our mediator, our Savior. Amen.